If wandering, considered as a state of detachment from every given point in space, is the conceptual opposite of attachment to any point, then the sociological form of the stranger presents the synthesis, as it were, of both of these properties. This is another indication that spatial relations not only are determining conditions of relationships among men, but are also symbolic of those relationships. The stranger will thus not, not be considered here in the usual sense of the term as the wanderer who comes today and goes tomorrow, but rather as the man who comes today and stays tomorrow, the potential wanderer, so to speak, who, although he has gone no further, he has not quite got over the freedom of coming and going. He is fixed within cert a certain spatial circle or within a group whose boundaries are analogous to spatial boundaries, but his position within it is fundamentally affected by the fact that he does not belong in it initially and that he brings qualities into it that are not and cannot be indigenous to it. In the case of the stranger, the union of closeness and remoteness involved in every human relationship is patterned in, patterned in a way that may be succinctly formulated as follows. The distance within this relation indicates that one who is close by is remote, but his strangeness indicates that one who is remote is near. The state of being a stranger is, of course, a completely positive relation. It is a specific form of interaction. The inhabitants of Sirius are not exactly strangers to us, at least not in the sociological sense of the word as we are considering it. In that sense, they do not exist for us at all. They are beyond being far and near. The stranger is an element of the group itself, not unlike the poor and sundry inner enemies, an element whose membership within the group involves both being outside it and confronting it. The following statements about the stranger are intended to suggest how factors of repulsion and distance work to create a form of being together, a form of union based on interaction. In the whole history of economic activity, the stranger makes his appearance everywhere as a traitor, and the traitor makes, it, makes his as a stranger. As long as production for one's own needs is the general rule, or products are exchanged within a relatively small circle, there is no need for a middleman within the group. A trader is required only for goods produced outside the group. Unless there are people who wander out into foreign lands to buy these necessities, in which case they are themselves strange merchants in this other region, the trader must be a stranger. There is no opportunity for anyone else to make a living at it. This position of the stranger stands out more sharply if, instead of leaving this place of his activity, he settles down there. In innumerable cases, even this is possible only if he can live by trade as a middleman. Any closed economic group where land and handicrafts have been apportioned in a way that satisfies local demands will support a livelihood for the trader. For trade alone makes possible unlimited combinations, and through it, intelligence is constantly extended and applied in new areas, something that is much harder for the primary producer with his more limited mobility and his dependence on a circle of customers that can be expanded only very slowly. Trade can always absorb more men than can primary pr production. It is therefore the most suitable activity for the stranger who introduces intrudes as a supernumerary, so to speak, into a group in which all the economic positions are already occupied. 
The classic example of this is the history of European Jews. The stranger is by his very nature no owner of land, land not only in the physical sense, but also metaphorically as a vital substance which is fixed, if not in space, then at least in an ideal position within the social environment. Although in the sphere of intimate personal relationships, the stranger may be attractive and meaningful in many ways, so long as he is regarded as a stranger, he is no landowner in the eyes of the other. Restriction to intermediary trade, and often, as though sublimated from it, to pure finance, gives the stranger the specific character of mobility. The appearance of this mobility within a bounded group occasions that synthesis of nearness and remoteness, which constitutes the formal position of the stranger. The purely mobile person comes incidentally into contact with every single element, but is not bound up organically through established ties of kinship, lo locality, or occupation with any single one. Another expression of this constellation is to be found in the objectivity of the stranger. Because he is not bound by roots to his particular constituents and partisan dispositions of the group, he confronts all of these with a distinctively objective attitude, an attitude that does not signify mere detachment and non-participation, but is a distant, distinct structure composed of remoteness and nearness, indifference and involvement. I refer to my analysis of the do dominating positions gained by aliens in the discussion of superordination and subordination. He's talking about a passage which can be found in the Sociology of George Zimmel, pages 216 to 21. So in this discussion, typified by the practice in certain Italian cities of recruiting their judges from outside, because no native was free from entanglement in family interests and factionalism. Connected with the characteristic of objectivity is a phenomenon that is found chiefly, though not exclusively, in the stranger who moves on. This is that he often receives the most surprising revelations and confidences, at times reminiscent of a confessional, about matters which are kept carefully hidden from everybody with whom one is close. Objectivity is by no means non-participation, a condition that is altogether outside the distinction between subjective and objective orientations. It is rather a positive and definite kind of participation, in the same way that the objectivity of a theoretical observation clearly does not mean that the mind is a passive tabula rasa on which things inscribe their qualities, but rather signifies the full activity of a mind working according to its own laws under conditions that exclude accidental distortions and emphasize whose individual and subjective differences would produce quite different pictures of the same object. Sorry, exclude accidental distortions and emphases whose individual and subjective differences would produce quite different pictures of the same object. Objectivity can also be defined as freedom. The objective man is not bound by ties which could prejudice his perception, his understanding, and his assessment of data. This freedom, which permits the stranger to experience and treat even his close relationships as though from a bird's eye view, contains many dangerous possibilities. From earliest times, in uprisings of all sorts, the attacked party has claimed that there has been incitement from the outside by foreign emissaries and agitators. Insofar as this has happened, it represents an exaggeration of the specific role of the stranger. 
He is the freer man, practically and theoretically. He examines conditions with less prejudice. He assesses them against standards that are more general and more objective, and his actions are not confined by custom, piety, or precedent. And there's a footnote here. Where the attacked parties make such an assertion falsely, they do so because in those in higher positions tend to exculpate inferiors who previously have been in a close, solidary relationship with them. By introducing the fiction that the rebels were not really guilty, but only investigated, so that they did not actually start the rebellion, they exonerate themselves by denying that there were any real grounds for the uprising. Finally, the proportion of nearness and remoteness which gives the stranger the character of objectivity also finds practical expression in the more abstract nature of the relation to him. That is, with the stranger only one certain more general qualities in common. That is, with the stranger one has only certain more general qualities in common, whereas the relation with organically connected persons is based on the similarity of just those specific traits which differentiate them from the merely universal. In fact, all personal relations, whatever, can be analyzed in terms of this scheme. They are not determined only by the existence of certain common characteristics which the individuals share in addition to their individual differences, which either influence the relationship or remain outside of it. Rather, the kind of effect which that com commonality has on the relation essentially depends on whether it exists only among the participants themselves, and thus, although general within the relation, is specific and incomparable with respect to all those on the outside, or whether the participants feel that what they have in common is so only because it is common to the group, a type, or mankind in general. In the latter case, the effect of the common features become attenuated in proportion to the size of the group, bearing the same characteristics. The commonality provides a basis for unifying the members, to be sure, but it does not specifically direct these particular persons to one another. A similarity so widely shared could just as easily unite each person with every possible other. This, too, is evidently a way which, in which a relationship includes both nearness and remoteness simultaneously. To the extent to which the similarities assume a universal nature, the warmth of the connection based on them will acquire an element of coolness, a sense of the contingent nature of precisely this relation. The connecting forces have lost their specific centripetal character. In relation to the stranger, it seems to me, this constellation assumes an extraordinary preponderance in principle over the individual elements peculiar to the relation in question. The stranger is close to us insofar as we feel between him and ourselves similarities of national or social position, of occupation, or of general human nature. He is far from us insofar as these similarities extend beyond him and us and connect us only because they connect a great many people. A trace of strangeness in this sense easily enters even the most intimate relationship. In the stage of first passion, erotic relationships strongly reject any thought of generalization. A love such as this has never existed before. There is nothing to compare either the, with the person one loves or with the feelings for that person. An estrangement is wont to set in. 
whether as cause or effect is hard to decide, at the moment when this feeling of uniqueness disappears from the relationship, a skepticism regarding the intrinsic value of the relationship and its value for us adheres to the very thought that in this relation, after all, one is only fulfilling a general human destiny, that one has had an experience that this occurred a thousand times before, and that if one had not accidentally met this precise person, someone else would have acquired the same meaning for us. Something of this feeling is probably not absent in any relation, be it ever close, so close, because that which is common to two is perhaps never common only to them, but belongs to a general conception which includes much else besides, many possibilities of similarities. No matter how few of those, these possibilities are realized and how often we may forget about them here and there. Nevertheless, the crowd is like shadows between men. No matter how few of these possibilities are realized and how often we may forget about them here and there, nevertheless, they crowd in like shadows between men, like a mist eluding every designation, which must congeal into solid corpora corporeality for it to be called jealousy. Perhaps this is in many cases a more general, at least more insurmountable, strange than that due to differences and obscurities. It is strangeness caused by the fact that similarity, harmony, and closeness are accompanied by the feeling that they are actually not the exclusive property of this particular re relation, but stem from a more general one a relation that potentially in, includes us and an indeterminate number of others, and therefore prevents that relation which alone was experienced from having an inner and exclusive necessity. On the other hand, there is a sort of strangeness in which this very connection on the basis of a general quality embracing the parties is precluded. The relation of the Greeks to the barbarians is a typical example. So are all the cases in which the general characteristics one takes as peculiarity and merely human are disallowed to the other. But here the expression, the stranger, no longer has any positive meaning. The relation with him is a non-relation. He is not what we have been discussing here, the stranger as a member of the group himself, itself. As such, the stranger is near and far at the same time, as in any relationship based on merely universal human similarities. Between these two factors of nearness and distance, however, a peculiar tension arises, since the consciousness of having only the absolute, absolutely general in common has exactly the effect of putting a special emphasis on that which is not common. For a stranger to the county, for a stranger to the country, the city, the race, and so on, what is stressed is again nothing individual, but alien origin, a quality which he has or could have in common with many other strangers. For this reason, strangers are not really perceived as individuals, but as strangers of a certain type. Their remoteness is no less general than their nearness. This form appears, for example, in so special a case as the tax levied on Jews in Frankfurt and elsewhere during the Middle Ages. Whereas the tax paid by Christian citizens varied according to their wealth at any given time, for every single Jew the tax was fixed once and for all. 
This amount was fixed because the Jew had his social position as a Jew, not as the bearer of certain objective conditions. With respect to taxes, every other citizen was regarded as possessor of a certain amount of wealth, and his tax could follow the fluctuations of his fortune. But the Jew as taxpayer was first of all a Jew, and thus his fiscal position contained an invariable element. This appears most forcefully, of course, once the differing circumstances of individual Jews are no longer considered, limited though this consideration is by fixed assessments, and all strangers pay exactly the same head, head tag. Despite his being inorganically appended to it, the stranger is still an organic member of the group. Its unified life includes the specific conditioning of this element. Only we do not know how to designate the characteristic unity of this position otherwise than by saying that it is put together of certain amounts of nearness and of remoteness. Although both these qualities are found to some extent in all relationships, a special proportion and reciprocal tension between them produce the specific form of the relation to the stranger.